This is an ABC podcast. Hilary Harper here. Hello. Today marks a key point in the Liddell Power Station closure in the New South Wales Hunter Valley, with the second of four units going offline there. It's one of our oldest coal-fired power stations, and the last unit will close by the end of the month. This is all part of a slew of closures of these older plants in coming years. Yulon and Luoyang A in Victoria and Bayswater in the Hunter Valley too. But when Hazelwood in Victoria closed in 2017, only one in three workers found other jobs. How well are we managing the transition away from coal-fired power and its impact on local communities? This is Life Matters, broadcasting from Nam, Melbourne. There was a lot of fear when the closure of the Liddell power station was announced a few years back. Liberal MP Tony Abbott wanted the government to compulsorily acquire the plant at one point, a call that was swiftly dismissed by then-PM Malcolm Turnbull. But you can see why local communities in particular would be anxious about such a big change to their economy and identity. And the biggest recent closure, Hazelwood in Victoria in 2017, did not go so well. How will this one affect the Hunter Valley and the nation? Chris Briggs is Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's been watching these shutdowns closely. Chris, welcome. Good morning. And Mike Kelly's with us too. He's President of the Musselbrook Chamber of Commerce, who clearly has a keen interest in how this particular closure will affect the community. Mike, great to have you with us. Thanks, Hilary. Mike, I'll start with you. How are people on the ground feeling at the moment? Well, I mean, there's, uh, I guess there's mixed um, emotions, uh, but uh, I guess I'm, I'm the president of the Chamber of Commerce, so I can really only comment on, on businesses' uh, response and, and feelings about the, about the situation. Um, I think there's a great deal of uh, uncertainty still about what the, what the future holds with the closure of uh, Liddell. I imagine the the business community, you know, is a microcosm of the wider community. And if there's anxiety there, there might be wider anxiety as well. Uh, How many businesses are directly affected, do you think, Mike? Well, the Chamber has 200 businesses uh, that are members of of our Chamber of Commerce. And there's there's probably about a a third or maybe uh, around about a third of those that would be directly involved. But all of them are indirectly involved, um, you know, because the the economic uh, inputs that flow from the power station and other industries in the area flow down through the whole uh, economy and and uh, through all uh, all business sectors. Yes, indeed, They're very intimately linked to the community, having been there there for over fifty years. Chris Briggs, how do you think this closure will go? Well, it's interesting. I think um, this one will be more modest than the impact of Hazelwood that you mentioned. Hazelwood closed down with only four months' notice, uh, and so that without time to build alternative supply, we saw electricity prices spike. And as you mentioned in, in, in the upfront part, a lot of workers took years to find another job or, or were unable to find another job because there wasn't time for the regional economy to adjust. In this case, we've actually had around six years' notice uh, and so I understand there is a workforce transition plan in place where a lot of the power station operators are going to be relocated at Bayswater. Uh, a large number of the workers are engaged by external contractors and in the context of a very tight labour market, they're going to be redeployed. Some are going to stay on site. Um, and we've been building renewables in, in recent years. So there is it, it's getting tighter, but there is sufficient capacity in the electricity market. So 
Um, it's interesting to watch, but it does look like the impact of this one will be more modest than some of the other ones we've seen. Well, AGL had a, a commitment to no forced redundancies. Will they be able to follow through on that, Chris? Um, that's my understanding, yes. I mean, I understand that, quite, as I say, quite a lot of them have been uh, able to be relocated to another power station, and the power station operator has got quite specific um, skills in some cases. Uh, and, and, yeah, my understanding is that they're, they're all being redeployed in different ways. The, Mike, the... Hilary, I'd like to speak to that. Yes, please. If I may. Um, I think that with regards to the employees at Liddell, um, AGL has done a very good job. Um, you know, as Chris says, there's uh, six plus years notice. Um, they've run a program uh, called Future U, uh, which which addressed every single employee um, with their uh, position that they were in, what their plans were for the future, um, how they could be uh, accommodated or retrained and, and the like. And my understanding is that all of the employees are either taking voluntary redundancy retirement or around 100 of those people um, are transitioning to Bayswater Power Station. Now, Mike, Bayswater is scheduled to close in the next 10 years. Is, is that just kicking the can down the road a bit? Well, that's that's looking ahead, um, you know, in, into the unknown. Um, I mean, the immediate impact is that the, the people that actually work at Liddell um, will not be disadvantaged. But that, that is um, you know, a small part of a much bigger problem. Uh, the business's concern is that, that we are closing and shutting down capacity before we have the alternatives in place. And we don't have any evidence that the approvals process and the plans for the alternative generators will, A, provide the the electricity that we require for an expanding economy, but also whether it will provide the employment uh, into the future that coal-fired power stations and, and the coal industry in general provides. Speak- and they're, they're yeah. the big issues. We're speaking with Mike Kelly, who's president of the Musselbrook Chamber of Commerce, very closely located near the Liddell Power Station, which is in the process of closing. Another unit shuts down today. Chris Briggs, your research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. I noticed that Tristan Edis from the Green Energy Markets was on RM Brecky this morning with Patricia Carvelis, saying he wasn't worried about losing generating capacity because the renewable market is so much bigger now than when Hazelwood closed, for one thing, and wind and solar are likely to cover any loss from Liddell. Do you share that optimism? Yeah, that's right. The the energy market operator publishes recurrently the uh, data on the supply-demand balance, and it says that even if we built nothing the next few years, we only start to just breach the reliability standard 2027-28. But we've built, I mean, Liddell produced, I think, around um, 7,000 gigawatt hours last year. We've built over double that in the time since the notice period was provided, uh, and there's a lot more in the pipeline. Certainly, we'd want to see you know that continue and an acceleration in the, the the wind farms, the solar farms, the transmission lines, and the storage. But yeah, it's going to be it, it'll be taken up with new renewables um, and probably some increased generation from existing plant.
Okay, so we've got uh, more gas generation coming in in the Illawarra and uh, Snowy Hydro coming in the next couple of years. Uh, you're not worried about uh, not having enough capacity in coming years, even though other coal-fired sorry coal-fired power stations are slated to close in the area as well. It's certainly getting tighter. Araring is, is scheduled to close in 2025, but the energy market operators' data includes that. Um, so certainly there's a signal that we need to get on and uh, as fast as possible building the new supply. There's also a lot more we could be doing on the demand side, reduce the, the energy we use and, and help uh, households save money. But it's getting tighter, but uh, it's certainly manageable. Mike Kelly, it sounds like despite that optimism in the energy market and uh, the New South government's not worried either, there's still some anxiety on the ground. What would have helped with that? Could the communication have been better around the plan for post-closure? Um, well, <laughs> I, I don't think so. I, I think that um, the, the Liddell uh, closure is, as I said earlier, one one small part of a, of a bigger issue. I think there is um, a lack of uh, reliable communication uh, from the energy market operator or, or from government in, in, in general about what the what the balance is between the availability of uh, electricity and the demand. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it's just been mentioned, Chris has mentioned that, you know, the, there should be a, a, a reduction in demand. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know, developing more manufacturing capability, um, all sorts of things um, that require even more electricity. So I think that there's, there, there's a lack of information uh, that business can rely on um, to, to show that the the, the megawatt loss uh, is offset by the megawatt gain, um, and you know that that certainly needs to be better communicated. And and of course, with that, the there is unease uh, about the increasing uh, price of electricity. So we're we're paying uh, for for the transition, and then the government talks about offering uh, you know subsidies and relief for for people's uh, power bills. Um, but that's largely on borrowed money. Um, so, you know, from a business sense, um, there's, there's concern that the, that the whole process is not really uh, economically sustainable. It may well be emissions sustainable, but, you know, we, we have a focus on reduction of emissions um, when business believes that we should have a focus on sustainability and, and affordability. We're speaking with Mike Kelly, who's the uh, Chamber of Commerce president in Musselbrook, where the Liddell Power Station is uh, hitting another key marker today. Another unit is closing down in its scheduled closure. Chris Briggs is with us too, Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology. Uh, Chris, interesting to kind of hear these anxieties about uh, the the how this will play out, uh, not just economically, but you know nationally in terms of the prices that we pay for power. And I want to look specifically at the plan for the Liddell infrastructure. Originally, it was going to be repurposed to produce electricity from gas turbines and battery storage and pumped hydro. That plan changed a bit. Do we know what the plan is now for you know what was expensive interest? structure in its time? Uh, I understand there's still feasibility assessments going on, but they're looking at battery storage, which is what uh, quite a number of the coal-fired power stations are looking at because, of course, they've got excellent grid connection and 
Uh, one of the things we need, of course, is more storage so that we can complement the, the growth of cheaper variable uh, renewable sources. I think they're looking at other on-site uses like agriculture or hydrogen production, but they're still going through that process. Um, I guess maybe just referring to the wider point about the anxiety, I mean, one of the things we do lack is really a plan to manage the exit of coal. Like the energy market operator has five different scenarios about the different timings of how coal-fired plants could close. So everyone is operating in a context of uncertainty and, uh, and racing to build, to build what they can. And um, we've got ambitious renewables targets. So there's certainly, um, certainly a big job ahead to build the generation. Um, and we could, we could be doing better in terms of having a negotiated plan so that everyone has more clarity about what's actually happening, like some nations have, like Germany, um, where there's a scheduled date for closure and everyone knows the sort of um, the timing of the plants. So it's, it's much easier for communities to manage and for the energy system to manage. So that's, that is certainly one thing that we lack and which would help manage the sort of anxieties that we're seeing. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, I remember when these conversations first started and, and there was huge anxiety about what would happen to these workers who are so highly skilled but in a very particular area. And that was before mm-hmm. the renewable um, industry and market started to have this boom that we're seeing. But even now, Chris, I mean, do you get job for job replacement with renewables when a, a such a large power station shuts down? Or, or is it a bit of a trickier long term plan than that to make sure people have meaningful work in their local communities? No, it's definitely trickier. I mean, renewables will provide some jobs, but they're often in different areas and they're, they're different skills. So some of the, the areas like trades, electricians, are certainly very transferable, but the, the new infrastructure has been built further inland. So we do need a plan for these mining regions. Um, ideally, you'd have some sort of transition authority and a fund, and we really need to urgently start diversifying these economies so that they can cope when the plants do close down there's certainly a risk that later in the decade, as we get closer to achieving the targets, the ambitious targets have been set, that you might see a rush of closures. And if that happens without alternative economic development, then the impacts in these regions could be significant. So, yeah, we, we, we need to see um, greater funds, greater coordination to um, make sure these economies are robust when these plants do close down, which they will. It's just a question of timing. And Mike Kelly, how optimistic are you that the, the local economy and community can be resilient enough to deal with such a big change? Look, this, this economy is pretty resilient. Um, but, you know, as Chris says, it's, uh, it's reliant very largely on, on the coal industry. Um, it's also reliant on, on agriculture. The, the, the feasibility assessments around the, the Liddell site uh, have been underway for some time and probably look like being underway for some time yet. There's 10,000 hectares um, around the two power stations of Liddell and Bayswater and for years there's been all sorts of alternate uses, uh, alternative industries uh, proposed, um, some considered in more depth than others, but right at the moment there's nothing you know, in the, in the public arena uh, of a specific um, business uh, type of industry that will return um, the, uh, some of the economic benefits lost from the dill and in time from Bayswater. So the process is a long one. Um, and whilst we say it's good that we've had seven years' notice, in the scheme of things, the other side of the argument, the preparation for the transition, hasn't has that hasn't been enough time 
to get the alternatives in place. So somebody, probably the government, who has driven the whole agenda, really needs to come up with a plan that shows how the alternatives can be established and provide the economic inputs. And the local power generation from coal, again, is a very small part of the whole coal uh, and emissions situation for the hunter. Yes, we, well, we, have, we have a very large industry that is a labour-intensive export industry. And there is so very little talked about which would provide anything like the intensity of employment and the economic benefits to a local community and to the state and the country for that matter, mm. and that would be export product. And Mike, when we have these conversations, it's it's hugely important to look at the economic side of things. But I often find too that the communities are worried about how their sense of identity will change because because coal has been such a big part of those communities for such a long time. What's your sense of how the Musselbrook and surrounding communities feel about that? Do they do they see the urgency of a need to transition away from coal or is there still that sense that coal is part of them? Oh, I think there's a sense that it's part of them. I mean, there's a long history. I mean, mm. you know, Liddell is 50 years and um, and, the, and the coal industry um, is over 100 years um, in, in the Upper Hunter. So, yes, it is It is uh, part of the, you know, the, the community's uh, social fabric. Um, and, and I think that... You know that there are those who who would say that you know that we shouldn't be moving away at all. Um, there are others that would be saying, well, yes, we've got to have a transition, but we have to we have to manage it. Um, and of course, then there are others that uh, say, well, we've got to have a transition. It doesn't matter whether we manage it or not. So, so there's a range of range of, uh, of views, I guess, in, in in the community. But one thing I would say is that the the community is very busy and, and business community is very busy with other issues too. I mean, the economy is, is fairly strong. Um, the the labour is in very short supply. Um, Post-COVID, there are all sorts of, uh, of cost and, and logistics uh, challenges uh, for, for businesses uh, and, for, and for employees. So... You know, there's there's um, there's probably a focus on more immediate um, problems uh, in the in the local economy than there is on the, the closure of Liddell. Yeah. Well, what's planned at the station for closing day, Mike? How are people going to commemorate that? Well, they, they, you know, they, the the last unit gets turned off on Friday the twenty eighth, um, and uh, and on Saturday. Um, the, the 29th, they've, they've got a, an open day down there, like a reunion day, uh, from 10 till 2. And, the, you know, past employees, present employees, connections with the power station uh, are all invited along. Um, they ran a uh, an event like this a couple of years ago on, on the uh, 50th anniversary. Um, and But this will be a sort of a final uh, send-off uh, for the old girl, as they as they call her, mm. um, and uh, and it's an opportunity for people to 
you know, to get together and share share uh, memories uh, and uh, and and share ideas and plans uh, for the for the future. Um, so it'll be, I think it'll be a fairly large community event, um, but you know, it won't be the it won't be the be all end all of the things that are happening in the Upper Hutter. No, indeed. Well, and a big part of a community is the stories we tell about ourselves, isn't it? So I wish you and the community all the best with that day, Mike. Thanks for joining us on Life Matters. Thanks, Hilary. Pleasure. Chris Briggs, a quick final question to you. A text just popped in. Germany's removing wind turbines to access new coal. Why? They are pretty wise. We could learn a lot from that. Would you care to speak to that just quickly as we finish up? Uh, I'm not familiar with that specific uh, one. I mean, Germany is in general transitioning as well to renewables. They have a plan to close down their coal plants by uh, 2035 or 2032. They can manage earlier. I'm not sure about that specific uh, text, but certainly Germany has managed this transition as well as anyone so far. Not to say they don't have their own social divisions around it, but um, they've managed to do successive waves of restructuring the coal industry with no forced redundancies across the entire industry, not just one plan. Um, and, but they've been doing that. They're certainly looking to transition to renewables. So uh, I don't know the specifics of that project, but it's certainly not the overall direction that's happening for Germany. And as you said before, you'd like to see a, an overarching national plan that uh, deals with all these transitions. Chris, great to have your expertise on the show today. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Chris Briggs is Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. And you heard too from Mike Kelly, President of the Musselbrook Chamber of Commerce, very, very closely linked to the Liddell Power Station, uh, working community and business community. A few texts to finish up with, quite a range of views. Uh, the the Araring coal-fired electricity generator is Australia's most modern and most efficient. It should be the last one to close, not one of the first. And another Another text, while, for coal, while the coal communities will feel the changes of closure most acutely, all of us will have to adjust to changes in every area of life as we take the necessary actions on climate change, environmental degradation, extinction, waste and many other challenges. Please, ABC, speak the truth. Be more nuanced, nuanced and updated in this space. This will change everything. You're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. Did you know we have the lowest rate of cash usage in the Asia-Pacific region? Fine and dandy for many of us, but how do we teach kids how money works if they never see it? Some clues in a moment. Hi, I'm Natasha Mitchell. Why do I love big ideas? Because they feed my curiosity, because they inspire me, they excite me, they challenge me, and because they can change the world, which is why I'm thrilled to be your new Big Ideas host in 2023, your front row seat to the best live forums and festivals across Australia and the world, Monday to Thursday, 8pm on ABCRN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Change your world, one big idea at a time. Australians were moving away from paying with cash even before the pandemic hit, but lockdowns really accelerated that. Grubby notes and coins, ew. But my kids were five and eight when the long lockdown started in our city. So for two years, they hardly got to see those daily transactions that really help you learn about money as you're growing up. They just saw me tap a card from time to time. Some analysts predict that by 2025, cash will account for only 2% of the value of point of sale transactions in Australia. How are we going to teach kids about money in that digitised landscape? Nicole Pedersen-McKinnon is a money commentator and educator and a mum who wants to ensure that kids have the tools to be money savvy. Nicole, great to have you with us. 
Thanks so much for having me. So this is a big move away from cash. What do you think the implications are of that? Yeah, look, I think it's getting more and more difficult, you know, not to sugarcoat it, um, for parents to impart those really life-changing lessons about money smarts and smart money management um, to their children because how do you teach that something is that is invisible actually runs out? And that is kind of the key, um, you know, to economic security in the future and and. Let's face it, parents have a vested interest in getting that across because eventually we want our kids to be able to move out. Yeah, we're trying to teach them to be as independent as possible, (laughs) aren't we? That's the goal. But, I mean, how much does it fall on parents compared to, say, schools? Do they teach financial literacy in schools now? Yeah, so what many people don't realise is that they actually do. So since 2004, the Australian Government Financial Literacy Board, under the steerage of the amazing Paul Clitheroe, has been working to get money smarts in schools. And it's actually been in the the Australian curriculum since 2015. But your child's never going to come home and go, hey, we did financial literacy today. They're not going to do that because it's actually been embedded in there. So what it's done, it's sort of a second strand topic, if you like. So it's been embedded across all sorts of subjects. I mean, maths, logically, but also more unlikely things like science and even English. They'll do little units and anecdotes and examples that model those kind of sensible finance decisions and that allocation of money and smart, you know, strategy around money that you've got, which is just tremendous. And and look, for anyone who wants to give their teachers a nudge, um, the moneysmart.gov.au website, which is fantastic actually has ready-made lesson plans on there for teachers. So if you want to if you want to point your um your children's teacher in that direction, it's a fantastic thing to do to kind of up that input that they are getting in schools. That's going to appeal to a lot of overworked teachers, I'm sure. We're speaking with <laughs> Nicole Pedersen McKinnon, our guest today, a money commentator and educator, and a parent herself who's going through these issues as we decreasingly rely on cash. And Nicole, actually I noticed one of my kids' um, school lessons involved little drawings of coins and notes and I'm sure they were completely mystified by that because I don't see them very often. (laughs) Does that mean that, you know, it becomes more important to talk about things explicitly since they're not getting a chance to observe those transactions as much? Oh, look, it's everything. Talk is everything right now. Communication is absolutely everything. And what's really important is that you walk the talk as well. So you need to model that really good money behaviour yourself. I mean, you mentioned credit cards and and the fairy tale of that earlier on. I mean, it looks like a modern day fairy tale. You know, you flash this magic thing and you get to take home whatever you want. And of course, the child doesn't see the evil bill at the end of the month. So what's really important is that you're constantly saying, this money is coming out of my bank account. I've saved this money, you know, beforehand, or I'm going to pay this off as soon as the bill comes and we are going to pay no extra on this. And getting that message across that if, in fact, you spend money that you don't have, you do pay extra. So the price goes up. And that's what interest is, you know. That's what happens if you don't save first. That's another really key lesson to get across to your child. And it's about talking constantly about those things. I find the supermarkets tremendous, a a tremendous teaching tool. You know, the unit pricing, those fake sales, pointing out how to actually get good value for your money and making it stretch as far as possible. Yes, indeed. I find it really useful when I forget my glasses at the supermarket because I get the kids to read the unit prices. (laughs) What is that number? Are you sure, 
let's compare this number. That's <laughs> a great trick. Exactly. Thank you. Did you notice my deliberate mistake? I mean, talking about money, I, I love that kind of narrating our lives around money. I'm doing this with my money now. Mm. But that's going to be a bit confronting for some people, isn't it, who might have been raised to think that talking about money is, you know, not the done thing. Oh, and listen, this is true. And there are real sort of pain trigger points around money. And that's why I think some people do find it really difficult to teach their kids and, and emotionally triggering, um, you know, because they, it does tap into something that we all learned the hard way, the expensive way. There wasn't really those explicit lessons in schools. There might have been some school banking, which is another uh, kind of um, aspect to all of this, mm. is that school banking has disappeared now. And that was really on the back of an ASIC, the regulator um, analysis of the benefits of that. And they found that really there was very limited evidence that there was any kind of financial literacy progress from it, but that there was this sort of tremendous marketing boost for the institutions that were in our schools. So it was a really damning report. And that saw a lot of states sort of fall like dominoes and banning it. And then the big play actually withdraw their school banking programs. Look, I don't think that's a bad thing because, you know, there was never going to be in those programs, was never going to be the lesson that is the most key in getting ahead in wealth and that's shop around, you know. They really did kind of foster complacency about interest rates. So that's, again, one of those other lessons that they forced parents to teach because that, that's a make or break thing for your kids' financial future. Well, and now I guess parents have access to a lot more digital tools about teaching about money and, and you know, savings apps and things like that. Is that useful or or does that kind of fall prey to some of those issues that, that afflicted the school-based uh, banking lessons that, you know, they might be biased towards a particular institution's interests? Yeah, look, I think that's a really valid point. I mean, I mean, the shopping around thing is everything. It really is. And if someone's not going to, you know, give you that opportunity to compare the interest rates, then that is that is really difficult because you've got to sort of get this message across too that there's not one institution in Australia that offers the best of probably even two products. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So what you should be doing is quite literally becoming a rate tart and spreading that money around, spreading your borrowings around so that you get the best of what's in the market. Look, there are educational apps that are a little more sort of arm's length than those product push style of ones, which can be really good. And and banks themselves, you know, the bank accounts that offer debit cards um, to underage children as well, which is fine. They're not a credit cards. Often they have sort of kid-tastic tools on there, which are great at sort of helping you create that savings mentality with your child and target those goals that are so sweet that you can taste them. Because as I always say, like all of us need strong motivation to resist instant gratification and giving your kids that, that sort of targeting mentality and that, that ability to delay gratification is really, really key. Yep, we've got a chore chart on the fridge and someone's saving for a Nerf gun and someone's saving for some kind of battle stadium. And yeah, the the, the idea is embedded in there. But Nicole Pedersen-McKinnon, it is tricky, isn't it, when, you know, the cash is invisible. You've got this idea of saving, but, you know, the goal can seem so abstract when you can't see the money racking up. Do you have ideas for how to, how to make it more um, obvious to kids what's happening with saving? Yeah, and I think it is. I think it is all visual. 
like I think this is what we're, we're sort of really talking about in this whole issue. So, you know, years gone by, we would have sat around the table and, you know, if your parents were trying to get this message across to you and instill it in you, they would have had an envelope with cash in it and it would have got almost doled out and allocated to, to what you needed for the week with this particular bit left over and, hey, what are we going to spend this on? And that is so visual, visual and it's so salient. So I think things like vision boards, things like chore charts, things like star charts, things like working towards, you know, X number of ticks, get to the picture of the bike at the end, whatever it is can really can really work for a child. And look, it doesn't have to be actual currency, but I do think there's still a place for cash. I really do. I mean, you, you try and pay with cash now, as you alluded to at the top of the segment, and, you know, someone will basically COVID will flicker across their eyes when you try and give someone cash at the moment. Having said that, like, you know, just, just, Showing your kids what it actually is that underlies their finances and their purchases, I think, is still really key. Really interesting text popping in about this, Nicole. One says, I can still remember the joy of watching my pocket money grow through school banking in the 1950s, Uh teaching children uh to save. Yep, even very small amounts is a benefit, I agree. Uh, Pay them cash pocket money and offer to double what they don't spend. You could start a debit card in your name and put what they accumulate onto this, but actually get out cash equal to what's in the credit card. So it's a very visual explanation of what is there. And this is fascinating, Nicole. Kids will appreciate a cashless world and the value of money just like we all do. They'll appreciate its value when it's automatically taken from their bank accounts and then embarrass themselves as they discover, usually in situ and in public, that there's insufficient funds left for their next purchase. Now, I really <laughs> wanted to ask, I mean, you, you learn a lot from those mistakes, don't you? Getting to the checkout and going, oh, actually, no, I will go put that cereal back now. But how much should you step in when kids make mistakes financially? I mean, it's, it's a big question for parents, isn't it? How much should you bail them out? Oh, look, I love all those ideas. And look, I would say never. <laughs> like basically, I know I'm a tough mama. But look, you know, equally with that, that saving, that matching savings idea that we just heard too, it's really important that everyone has pain in the game. You know, you know, housing is really expensive right now. But you should never give your children you know, the, the equivalent of, deposit, of their house deposit. And you see very, very wealthy people like cutting off inheritances all the time and trying to really create in their child that goal-targeting, work ethic kind of um, control and uh, sense that they they can make a difference to their environment. And I think that's really key. And I love that idea of like, you know, running out of the checkout because you're right, that's going to be a painful lesson that's not forgotten very easily. So look, I would say very rarely, I would say what is more important is to try and educate them and teach them the lesson of that to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So for example, say if you had a, I don't know, a mid to late teenager, who got into trouble with those buy now, pay later things, racked up quite a lot of debt. What would you do? Could you help them by setting up repayment plans rather than saying, look, I'll buy you out and you pay me back? What would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, look, we're getting into really interesting territory here now because, you know, and this was 
part of the um, the criticism of school banking was that the data in there meant that when the children turned 18, they could then be targeted immediately for debt products. Now, technically, a child should not be eligible for a debt product, but the problem with buy now, pay, now, pay later is that it has always slipped through the cracks of the consumer credit code because there is no interest levied. So we are facing all these sort of difficulties. And look, I would reiterate that kids are the target of fintech because, again, it's this customer acquisition funnel of people turning 18, which are new clients and new business. So it is something we have to be really careful of. You know, 30 years ago, it was not possible to spend more than you earned. You just had to wait until you got the money. But now you've got all sorts, you know, not only just buy now, pay later, you've also got this kind of ability to get your pay by the day, get your pay early if you like. And if you commit, you know, what you haven't got yet, then you get more and more behind, which is with the huge difficulty here. Look, I think it's just all about that education and that talk of make sure you don't spend more than you earn. You just have to wait. Waiting works wonders. Waiting means that you can build your wealth and actually get more. And if, you know, if underage children are getting into trouble with things like that, then I think there's there's um, there's cause for people to complain um, to things like, you know, the ACCC and, and fair trading about that because it's really not on. Yes, indeed. Nicole, it's been a fascinating look at uh, some of the ways we can talk to our children about money at different ages. Thanks so much for your time. An absolute pleasure, Hilary. Nicole Pedersen-McKinnon, a money educator and author of How to Get Mortgage Free Like Me. That's her book. I was a little sad and, you know, not surprised that she was suggesting modelling good behaviour, so not comfort shopping, for example. But her suggestions about the Money Smart website, really, really useful uh, budgeting uh, conversation tips for talking to your kids up there. The Money Smart government website uh, has some very trustworthy information on it. You're listening to Life Matters on ABCRN. Would you drive more safely if someone paid you? That's one idea being floated to bring down the distressing rate of car crashes on Australian roads. We'll talk about that next. Why get your news from the ABC News app? Well, it's part of my daily routine. I check it on my phone when I stop for a break. I can focus on local, national or world news. It's my choice. I get an alert when something new comes in. Love the live blogs. Follow them all day. There's more than just headline stories, you know. It's news that makes a difference. Why do I get my news from the ABC News app? I trust it. I trust ABC News Online. And it's free. It's free. For free news you can trust, download the ABC News app. When I was 12, my family was in a very bad car crash. No one died, but some of us were very badly injured. Some of us had our career options limited and some of us had lasting health issues. It was a terrible experience. So I am really interested in how we might make sure fewer people have to go through that or even lose their lives on the roads. Our next guest believes we need to completely rethink our approach to road safety because the number of Australians being injured and killed has increased lately. We'll find out what works to change driver behaviour. Mark Stevenson is a Professor of Urban Transport and Public Health at the University of Melbourne and he's been looking into this. Mark, great to have you with us. Great, nice to be here. Are you you surprised that the number of road deaths has increased? Um, Look, not surprised. Um, 
you know, we've had a lot of success in the past with um, mitigating, you know, the, the road trauma on our roads. And we've used you know, a whole array of strategies, uh, not just one sort of silver bullet. Um, but what we're, I, I think what we're continuing to do now then is to bring and could keep using those sorts of strategies but the the utility of them probably isn't as great as they have been in the past and i think we need to embrace a, a number of new strategies and approaches so are you saying that things like say reducing speed limits are not effective anymore i thought the research was pretty solid that coming down to 40 or even 30 could save lives Look, it does. I mean, we know, you know, lower speeds, you know, really reduces the levels of road trauma. Um, but I guess what we've got to keep focusing on here is we have an enormous road network. Uh, it, it is also, you know, our road burden in terms of deaths is, is predominant, you know, the sub, sub, sizable part of it is in our rural areas uh, on remote and rural regional roads um, where those limits are not necessarily speed limits that are enforced. Those speed limits work very well in highly urban areas and I think we need to also understand that our, our built environment really dictates you know what or how we drive and I, I think there's a whole array of strategies we can begin to embrace in that part as well um, but the challenge we still have also is those speed limits yes uh, point we have you know speed limits that are enforced using point-to-point -point radar strategies and laser and, and, and the like uh, um, but we were not able to do that across the entire network. So there's a challenge there. Mm, that's a huge challenge in regional areas, isn't it, with this massive over-representation of, of deaths on regional roads given the, the level of population. Mark, in Victoria, the state government's just extended its driver distraction laws, and we did a big interview on this. You can find it on the ABC Listen app and on the Life Matters website. So it's now an offence to scroll or type information into a smart device unless your car is parked. Are those kinds of changes likely to help make the roads safer? Look, we know, you know, there's been an enormous amount of work and research gone into, you know, crash causality. And, and so we know, you know, why we need to target speeds. And we also know why we need to target distraction. Um, the challenge is what, what strategies have we got that are highly effective in doing that? And and we're using enforcement practices, and those are useful. But we've got to be thinking beyond that as well. And and the digital world we live in now enables us to be able to apply you know, apply a whole different array of strategies that potentially could have you know, enormous benefit. And and I guess that's what I'm trying to advocate here. Yeah, though some people are going to be saying, you want to bring more digital technology into cars? How is that a good thing? Tell us a bit about telematics technology, Mark. Yeah, look, um, telematics technology has been around for a long time and, and it's sort of akin to what it, what it allows you to do is it gives you a lot of information about how you drive from the vehicle and and you can use that information to garner, you know, feedback to the driver about their individual driving approach. And that's really valuable. Um, it's sort of a bit like gene therapy, you know, for cancer treatment, you can actually really hone in on the individual and provide a very valuable treatment that's likely to have benefit. So uh, and can we just clarify for, for that individual feedback, what form might that take if you're driving along? 
So it, it gives you, it tells you whether the driver is exceeding speed limits. It actually tells you how hard they're braking. So, you know, it, they may be braking it, it really like it's avoiding a crash uh, very harshly. It, it tells you about your acceleration. Uh, the, some of the new techniques now are coming out even with telling you whether you are driving in a drowsy state uh, and giving you that sort of feedback. And then it creates a score uh, that allows you to say, okay, uh, you know, a lot of people perceive that they're a much better driver than they really are. And this is actually calibrates that to compare, compares you with the whole driving cohort and it sort of gives you an indicator, actually, you're not such a good driver as you thought you may have been. Um, and it gives you other opportunities to be able to say, okay, if this is how you drive, there are opportunities for you to enhance this driving and, 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 and hence drive safely, drive with reduced emissions and a whole, whole host of other opportunities that arise out of it. We're speaking with Mark Stevenson, Professor of Urban Transport and Public Health at the University of Melbourne. He's Director of the uh, Transport Health and Urban Design Research Lab too and he's been looking at this kind of digital feedback technology that can help tell us when we're doing things that aren't quite so safe on the road. So Mark, does it mean, you know, if you're driving and you slightly increase over the speed limit you get a beeping noise or something? Um, no, what we we don't provide the feedback to the driver at whilst they're driving. It's at post the trip, uh, and so you actually get the feedback post trip. Um, and what we've been we've done a number of experiments around. Oh, how do you do, should we reward drivers who are driving in a in a safer manner, or should we penalise them? And we've actually found that actually, if you give a driver a certain amount of money and you take a proportion of it away every time they breach a whole bunch of safety criteria, like exceeding posted speed limits by fifteen kilometres an hour. So quite excessive speed, those sorts of elements. When you start taking that money away from people, we actually see significant change in their driving behaviour. So so some of our research has actually been, you know, you would typically think, oh, we should be rewarding a driver. But in fact, if we're penalising them, we actually see much better cha- or changes in their driving behaviours and safer driving behaviours. So um, it's that sort of approach where we can actually have smart incentives uh, using digital format and platforms to provide, you know, enhancement and uh, to you know, provide cost-effective you know, ways of, of responding to the challenge we have with road trauma on our roads. Yeah, a bit of a combination of carrot and stick. Is that uh, practicable and sustainable economically, though, if governments are going to financially reward people for safe driving? <laughs> Look, that's a great question because what we're looking to do at the moment is we're doing a very large trial in Queensland, uh, New South Wales and in WA and we're looking at that among the highest risk uh, driving group which is young drivers. Um, The potential is that what we're trying to do in these trials is mimic, in our experiments, is mimic an insurance scheme. So all states have a third party insurer. So there's a potential that the sort of funding schemes that are currently in place to, to really fund the adverse outcomes following a crash could be used as a way of encouraging safer and driving and, and reduce the actual road trauma and therefore the, the costs associated with that. So there is a, there are structures in place that we could certainly use now to, to do this. So is it kind of a, a on steroids version of how insurance policies sometimes give you a discount for being a safe driver? Exactly, exactly. Ah. It's a personalised one. Um, and, and, you know, and clearly there's a lot that would need to be done to, to change that. It just gives us an in, uh, insights around different ways in the 21st century for us to be able to, to actually try and enhance the safety on our roads, particularly on those rural and regional roads where, you know, we, we don't have the ability to, to provide the, all of the infrastructure that we've actually done on many of our freeways and interstates and so on to be able to provide, you know, much greater and safer, you know, travel 
trips, traveling yeah. journeys. I was really interested to see, Mark, that apparently younger drivers are choosing not to get manual licenses in, in the main these days. Will that have any impact on road safety over time? Look, it's it's unlikely. I mean, I think that just reflects, that purely reflects what we're, um, the vehicle fleet. There's just very few manual vehicles now. Uh, and, it, you know, another 30 years, it'll be, there'll be very few internal combustion engines. It'll be, you know, electric vehicles. So it's just a, hey, what we're seeing is this transition, these cohort effects as technology moves forward. Uh, the other question that occurred to me while we've been speaking, Mark, is your uh, telematics technology and, and financial incentives combination targets things like harsh braking and speeding, uh, those aspects of driver behaviour. Are those the biggest issues when it comes to safety on our roads compared to, say, I don't know, infrastructure or built environment planning, those kinds of things? Uh, look, they're all a component. Um, you know, our behaviour is depend. You know, reflects the environment we're actually travelling in. So, you know, the built environment is key to that. Um, so, the infrastructure is certainly really plays an important part, as it, as does you know other elements of the environment and the vehicle you you know you're currently using. But, uh, you know, we know we've seen substantial um, enhancements in the vehicle safety over the last sort of four decades. So, um, you know, that's an ongoing and and the you know, automakers are constantly working on that as well. So there's a whole number of other elements. Our infrastructure certainly we need to look at. And then again, we need to look at then some, you know, the new new strategies for ensuring we, we have, as an individual, can be you know, supported in terms of our safety. Well, our listeners are really, really interested in this market. Texts are just flooding in on both, you know, individual behaviour but also the bigger picture. I'm a rural driver of 50 years' experience, says one. I was also a truck driver in Sydney. I see speeding, but the issue I see is drivers behaving like idiots. Big utes and B-doubles are the worst offenders. I'd love to see more police on the road and highly visible. One bright car produces a lot of change, not hiding up a laneway. I guess that's an issue with resourcing. Another says, my niece and nephew in the UK are equivalent to our P-plate status. They have a black box in the car which monitors their driving and breaches put up their premiums. Wow, is that common, Mark? Well, that's what we're talking about with the telematics. That's that's telematics. Um, so if we in Australia, we've actually moved forward beyond the black box being required in your box, and that can be used off your phone now. So so technology keeps evolving. So that's exactly what we're talking about. So in fact, the UK has embraced this telematics technology, as has Europe and the and the US, and we're just we're lagging very much so here in, in Australia and embracing this sort of approach. Mm. A lot of other people within individual options. Stu from Melbourne says roadcraft and courtesy are thrown out the window with our modern selfishness. Mark in Adelaide says I religiously use cruise control around town, uh, speed camera alerts, he's named a particular app, and digital speed presentation. Could you explain how they help, Mark? Um, so again, I mean, and some some telematics providers actually provide. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, some of the vehicles actually provide all of that information. So you know, the most recent you know electric vehicles like Tesla have all of that. But if you have packages in your vehicles, particularly the most uh, recent models, they all provide um, uh, vehicle and speed alerts. So, so they be basically in the vehicle whilst you're driving. Um, there are some that have displays that that are color coded that give you indications around 
current speeds and what you're doing and, and feedback, you know, color codes as well. So there's a whole range of strategies out there, um, some of which, you know, haven't been shown to be particularly efficacious, others that, you know, there's some benefit. But, um, yeah, there, there certainly is a lot more work that needs to be done on that, so the sort of feedback that's been provided to the drivers. And and, and clearly, I mean, the human uh, factors and, and, you know, the vehicle and human interface is really, really important because it is becoming a lot more complex with the digital world we live in too. So design is really key to this too. God, yes, it's so hard to change a radio station. <laughs> Got to yeah, pull over and yeah. do that now. Uh, another text says, I think the most important change we could make in New South Wales would be to change the road signage to read keep left unless driving the maximum allowed speed limit. So I guess that's a user interface of a kind too. And this one for you too, Mark, just as we finish up, this is a key issue for a lot of people. What we need is much better driver training with graded licences. So you have to earn the permission to upgrade for more powerful vehicles from day one. The saying about old dogs, new tricks holds too. Bad habits die hard. Mark, from a road safety perspective, someone who researches and works in this field, would you like to see a different attitude to training over time as well, perhaps, you know, reassessing people over the course of their driving life? Look, some of that happens already, but I mean, what we do know from the researchers is not extent. There's not robust evidence to highlight that driver training is is you know a useful strategy in the overall scheme of you know trying to minimise the level of trauma on our roads. Um, what we do know is that graduated licensing, so the entry into the into the vehicle licensing system, uh, vehicle registration, oh, sorry, not vehicle, uh, driver licensing, that has had enormous benefit. Uh, and we're also seeing that there is a lot more research happening now on the exiting from the system, so the older drivers and how we deal with that. Um, those strategies have potential, both the begin entry and exit, but um, to, to then have a graduate you know levels throughout your driving period which could extend 30 40 years uh, there isn't any evidence to suggest that, that and and levels of training to suggest that that would be beneficial well we'll just have to wait for the little black boxes in all our new cars mark it's been fascinating chatting with you today thanks for your time you're welcome mark stevenson professor of urban transport and public health at the university of melbourne little black box in each car telling you how you're driving could be interesting. Lots of texts. Australian drivers don't drive a safe distance apart at speeds over 70. I returned from three years in California and I'm constantly afraid and appalled. Bring back the three second rule on multi-lane roads, says this texter. Jan in Preston writes, I'm getting older and I'm losing my nerve, especially on freeways. So many people exceed the speed limit and drive aggressively, especially four-wheel drives. No police attention to this. I try to avoid freeways now. And on our discussion about kids and money, teaching them about money in a digitally financial landscape. Most adults can't resist impulse purchases, says one text. So how do we expect children to handle it? Your financial history follows you for life. Make a mess of card use as a child and it will haunt them forever. And Margaret in Canberra writes, lay-by used to be a godsend when I was young. You paid a bit at a time, but you didn't get your purchase until it was fully paid for. So true. Uh, lots of different thoughts about how to teach young people. Really appreciating your feedback here on our stories on Life Matters. If you had to guess how much we're spending on average each month on subscriptions that we don't use, what would you say? 
I put it at about 15 bucks, and boy, was I wrong. Recent research from ING Bank found Australians are throwing away about $105 per month on subscriptions we've forgotten about or don't need anymore. That's over $1,200 a year each. Now, the ACCC wants the government to crack down on this practice known as subscription trapping. And so do I, now that I'm newly enraged. Let's see how that might work on the next episode of Life Matters. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.